Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Hi, friends. I, I decided back. that that's what I'm going to start saying now. It's just hi, friends. Yeah, so. I think that's good. I think so. We're all friends here, whether we disagree or agree on things. Hopefully, we are doing what we can to educate each other and ourselves in these trying times. I think, you know, there's very few times that the universe kind of connects people and dots. And I think this podcast is definitely one of them. This week is one of those, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we basically just made this come out very quickly for you guys. Obviously, we're in the midst of a pandemic, but also in the middle of a massive movement. And what better person to have on our podcast than Todd Hasak Lowy? I almost Lowy. had it. Lowy. <laughs> he is a professor, but more importantly, the author of the book, We Are Power, How Nonviolent Activism Changes the World. And like I said, the universe, I mean, what we've seen in the last two weeks with the protests, with the Black Lives Matter movement has really just taken over. And I think this book, especially because it's geared towards our youth, right? Anyway, I'm going on. Todd, hi. Yes. Hi. (laughs) Welcome. Please say hello to everyone. Thanks for having me. Great to meet both of you. And I'm glad my book reached you. Excited to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, just if you can kind of give a little bit of background about yourself and then how you came about writing this book. Sure. My background's somewhat strange with regards to how I wound up writing this book, so I will not cover most of it. I originally was a straightforward academic. I started writing fiction in graduate school. For a time, I was both a straight-ahead academic. I was a professor of Hebrew literature, but I was also publishing fiction. And then, unexpectedly, I started writing for younger readers. And then, unexpectedly, I started co-writing books of nonfiction for younger readers. And so the book I wrote before this was a history of the women's suffrage movement called Roses and Radicals that I co-wrote with a woman named Susan Zimmett. And when I finished that project, I wanted to do another one like it. I wanted to write a book on my own of that sort, which involved finding a, a worthy topic, doing a bunch of research, and finding a way to tell the story to younger readers. And nonviolence was the topic I sort of stumbled upon. I will not pretend that I knew fully what I was getting into, I won't pretend that I was as happy and sort of satisfied as I was by the time I was done. I sort of became a true believer in the process of working on the book. I didn't enter it. I entered it really the way as a writer and as a scholar and a researcher, I thought this would be interesting and worth my time and energy. I knew in general, like, it's a good thing. And this was in 2017. So I was already, you know, feeling very consciously I need to do work that's going to be good for me and good for the world. Thinking about that in ways that I had not thought about it before. But even with that, I just, you know, more and more feel like this is kind of the way out, maybe. Yeah. And you, like, what perfect timing. I mean, your book just came out in April of this year, just in time for everything that's going on. We keep getting a lot of people who will post or say, like, oh, well, like, all of these protests and everything, it's just coming out of nowhere, which... 
we all know is not the case. And truly, I mean, you starting this book process in 2017, I mean, seeing that this has been a movement coming for some time, and it all just kind of came to a head at this point when we're dealing with so much, but you kind of like, it really is like perfect timing, I'd say. Yeah, the timing's pretty uncanny. It's a little strange, and I don't quite know what to do with myself some days, as I feel like I want to kind of rewrite the whole book to put it out in a different way to new people. But yeah, we are in a moment that has been called, if you want to read another great book about nonviolence, it's a little bit more geared toward adults. There's a book called This is an Uprising by Mark and... I want to say Peter, but that might be wrong. Both last name Engler. But they it's an overview of kind of activism in general and nonviolence. And it's much more from the perspective of the 21st century. Mm. But they talk about this thing called the moment of the whirlwind. Basically, the way they talk about, you know, there's a movement, there's activists, there's people agitating for something. They're trying, they're trying. And then there is a what's called a trigger event. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, instead of you struggling to get 15 people to your event, there's 10,000 people. And so the murder of George Floyd was very clearly a trigger event. It's quite clear if you're looking closely at what's going on now that there has been tons of activists doing this work, even leadership. There's been a lot of energy put into this. And in a way, they were ready for when the rest of society woke up. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it both feels sudden and not. I think if you're in it, and I should mention, I'm not someone who's super involved in Black Lives Matter, but I assume for the people that have been in that for a while, this doesn't feel sudden. It feels like, where has everybody been? Yeah. The rest of us, right, that have been mobilized in one shape or another, it's sudden for us. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a group that have been, you know, fighting through so many, you know, these horrible incidents over the past decade, over the past, you know, since our country was born. I mean, you talk of you see families who are reporting, you know, they're teaching their children about George Floyd and they were learning about, you know, different injustices when they were a child. And so were their parents. This is nothing new. You know, but what we certainly are seeing quite a difference with the rest of the world, I think, or the rest of America, at least. But one thing that I think really stands out about your book and in this time about the nonviolence, because I think the media has really taken its own spin on everything. You see in one media report how everything is peaceful and things are going great and and we're making change. And then on the next token, the next media outlet, you see so much about the violence. And I think that has been really divisive in the country as well. And our listeners know that we're not shy about talking about gun violence and gun culture. We have had many episodes on it since we have experienced so many school shootings in our lifetime. Can you talk about the nonviolent nature or the the nonviolent activism, how you kind of describe how that's a little bit different than Maybe what we saw with the protests to open the hair salons with AR-47s, you know, or 15s of how many weeks ago. So let me answer it as follows. And if you want me to talk about it a little different afterwards, let me know. But one of the interesting things, and I think one of the common misconceptions about nonviolent activism and why it is effective is that it actually doesn't preclude violence. In Mm -hmm. fact, in some ways it invites it, Mm -hmm. not sort of happily, but it recognizes it as perhaps a necessary ingredient. So one of the things that we saw, certainly in the earliest part of the coverage of these protests, was something that we knew all along, which is that the media are interested in violence. 
right? Mm -hmm. That is something that they know how to report. And this is something that nonviolent activists have understood for a really long time from before television, that mm -hmm. violence, suffering is draws people's attention. And so what we saw was both sort of why when nonviolent activists are able to truly make something completely nonviolent that works so well in their favor, because what you see is a sort of theater of someone suffering for something that they believe in for a just cause. And we saw as well for people that were less initially sympathetic to their cause, people saying, well, they're just rioting, they're just destroying stuff. And there's an entire conversation that's going on about sort of just how much any rioting or looting is sort of understandable and or justifiable. But putting that aside, what we saw ultimately, and this is from my vantage point, how this is kind of shaken out is that it seems to me undeniable that the nonviolent protests have sort of won this round. And the measure of that, I'm seeing this in the media, is that public opinion has shifted meaningfully in favor of the sort of overall orientation of Black Lives Matters move, right? And even things like defund the police, which three weeks ago was a obscure and or radical notion, is now, doesn't mean that everybody wants it, but everybody's talking about it, it and absolutely. it doesn't seem crazy to a lot of people. Right. And that is precisely because the police overreacted, our president joined them, and all of that sort of made the case for the protesters, right? That we have violent police, they don't use their access to violence in a just manner, in a fair manner, they use it in a racist manner. And now we're seeing by virtue of all these protesters who are very courageously willing to be hurt and tear gassed and shot with rubber bullets and beaten, they've made their case. And this is absolute sort of nonviolence 101. In the chapters in my book, you mm -hmm. see a version of this basically Absolutely. in every single chapter. Every single chapter. And I think that's what's so you did a magnificent job for, because it is geared for, you know, young adults. It's very real. It's not, you know, sugar-coated, which I appreciated because I think that sometimes a lot can be lost when you try to, you just really try to make it too sugary for kids. But that was something, you know, because I've heard of each of these individual instances, except the Velvet Revolution. That was interesting since that was like in the late 80s. But, you know, you learn about it, right? You learn about Gandhi and then, you know, you kind of hear about Martin Luther King and his speech and it's all just very different when you're reading about it in, you know, fourth or fifth grade. But you just kind of are able to see the pattern and just reflecting on the last couple of weeks, it exactly fit what you had kind of laid out with each of the, it was, you know, and that is a testament to the activists, the people on the ground that have been training for this. They have been yeah. preparing for this. And it was just exactly that, you know, it's not just necessarily hunger strikes or kind of, you know, sitting there. It is being willing to break the law, you know, curfews being placed and things like that. But the it's that disruptive, risky tactics that challenge those in power and interrupt the way things normally work without taking up arms. That's what you have in your book. And that is exactly that. We are already in a pandemic that is not normal. And it's awakened, I think, something in a lot of people. And now with social media, that being at the forefront, I think that that has changed the way some of these activists use, you know, those techniques. So it was just, it was just to be able to read this book in this time was just, it was made my mind just blown. <laughs> I just couldn't, you know, because yeah. we are, this is history, right? So 
The premise, though, for writing it, you have two young kids. Is that right? Not so young. Not so young. Two oh, okay, two children. Yeah. Was that Se- your initial 17 thought? 17 and 22. Oh, my gosh. 17 Okay. Yeah. I thought they were maybe <laughs> like I, 12 or 15. I, you know, <laughs> children are children when yeah. you're the parent. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. So were they part of the reason that you wanted to kind of put this book together? Obviously, they were not that young when you decided. Or was it just an area that you thought young adults needed to be educated on? Well, I'll say in general, as my children got older, my early writing, especially my fiction for adults, it's dark in a way. It's not, I wouldn't say it's super optimistic. Mm. And I think I felt as I started getting a little bit older and as they started getting older that if I was going to invest time and energy in really meaningful chunks of my adult life to writing, that I would be wise to try and find things to believe in. That, I think, eventually led me to this book. Mm. And then I did feel, you know, as I didn't think everything was perfect before, but 2016, you know, for me and for just, you know, a lot of other people was like, oh, this is a very broken society. This country has a lot, a lot of work to do. And I wanted to write something. And one of the things I'm really glad about this book is I really do think of it as a, a book that is at once sort of an inspiration, but also a guide of the sort, at least sort of an introductory guide. Like this is, you don't like something, you think there's a great injustice, here's a way to fix it. So that is something I feel like I'm very proud and eager to get this to children. And as you said, you know, one of the compliments I like to hear from people is that when you said it's not sugar coated. Yeah. I mean, this is, I had my first sort of virtual school visit. Normally what I do when I publish a book for young readers is I just go into schools. And that's far and away my favorite thing to do when you interact with students and have conversations with them. And I haven't really been able to do that, but I did a virtual one and I did it just this like less than a week ago. And one of the weird feelings I had during it was I was sort of telling them without ever saying it all together, like this really works. And one of the reasons it works is because people are willing to go out and get hurt in public. And I was sort of wondering to myself, like, what does it mean to say that to a classroom full of students? But I think we don't have a problem in our society overall with the notion of like, sometimes we have to send soldiers across the world and sometimes they die and they sacrifice so we can live in freedom. And I have a lot of issues with a lot of the rhetoric around that, but we won't get into that. (laughs) But I mention it just because it's quite clear that our society understands the notion of like sacrificing oneself for what is right and suffering for what is necessary And so I feel like the the sort of heaviness of the book is that truth of like, this is a way to make really monumental change, which doesn't mean it's easy, but it is effective. And I really believe it's effective. And I think we're seeing it now. And I really hope that, you know, there's going to be kind of ebbs and flows of the energy behind this. And I really hope that collectively people understand this is going to be multiple rounds of this. Yeah, I think that's so important to be talking real to kids and not sugarcoat. We know that the majority of the history books do just that. They are biased, they sugarcoat, they don't include everything. And what you learn as a child, I mean, you know, we always say kids are not born racist or discriminatory or full of hatred towards anybody. That is a taught thing it's learned and the more that we sugarcoat the more that we leave you know are being very selective of what we teach these kids i think they're more susceptible to you know fall under a different viewpoint but also 
to kind of go about it their own way, which may not always be the best way. I think one thing that we've been really talking about in our practice and just with like, how do we get schools to understand what is next is we need to be having these conversations with kids. Parents need to be having their conversations with their children from an early age. There's no such thing as it's too early to talk about race. Vicky has a young daughter and I'm expecting and, you know, we've definitely had those conversations about how do we have these tough conversations with our kids and when is the time to do so? And I think what you said is just right. We need to be real with the kids at any age too, because, you know, it's with that comes that everything that they need to learn, but also the power to know that like they can make change. I think a lot of people in the 2016 election, especially young people that did not get involved or did not vote was because they felt like they couldn't make a difference. So I think they need to hear that. I also think that if you're ever going to get it and you can decide what getting it means, <laughs> you get it certainly by the age of like 10 or 11. In some way, like if you are interested in looking at the world and seeing what's out there and understanding that it's big and messy and complex and there's things that people are walking around like, well, that's just how it is that you're like, that's totally insane. You're going to know that pretty young. And I guess I've always written when I've been writing for younger readers for those kids. And I suppose as well, I think there's plenty, there's many more kids that could kind of enter that group of people if we spoke to them a little bit differently. But I think that they know. And I think as well, I mean, if anything, and this is certainly relevant if you're writing on anything having to do with social justice, is that they see it more clearly than us because part of getting by as an adult is finding ways to not see things that are right in front of you. Because mm -hmm. I think about all the time, like the first time you see a homeless person, it basically doesn't compute. Like it does not make any sense that there are homeless people in the world. But by the time you've seen the hundredth one, you don't see them for the most part. Right. And that goes for a vast majority of things that sort of fall into the general category of like, this is the thing that shouldn't exist in society. We should be able to fix this. And children, are they're much closer to that initial sort of shock of how can this be? And so one of the things I like about writing for this age is like, I can be honest because it's not weird to them. It doesn't seem like I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. They're not quick to judge or question as much. Well, I, and I think they like, know if they're getting, as a kindergartner, we're, you know, along with the, in California, we have earthquake drills. You're actually doing active shooter drills. I think right. they get it. I don't think it's too young to talk about, you know, those sort of things. And, you know, just reflecting. I mean, if you would have told me 10 years ago that Florida was going to actually pass some sort of gun control, I would have been like, what do you No, That's not going to happen. But we saw that with the slew of young activists after the school shooting. And forgive me, I can't even think. Parkland. Thank you. Parkland. There's just been too many. And There's I'm so many. overwhelmed in the middle of this pandemic. Thank you, guys. Part like I would have never thought that would happen. And I think that is what is so wonderful. You know, when you start the book, you're, you know, who makes history? And when we really don't ever question our history books, right, when we're growing up, but it's the winner, the winner makes the history. And I think you laying out you know, the majority of the things like look at this list and it's just it appears to be all violent, right? It's just wars. Wars have really shaped our history. But you very quickly turn that around. And I think obviously that's the rest of the book. But, you know, what is it about the nonviolent activism that you think really is so impactful 
Is it that disruption of what is normal? Is it like you had said, you know, kind of changing people's opinions, you know, not necessarily very quickly, but kind of over time? What What is it if you could pinpoint one thing? I would answer in two ways. The first is that, and I sort of mentioned this before, but it's worth emphasizing, is that nonviolent activism and nonviolent direct action are forms of conflict. So I was actually, I've been wanting to, I've been going back this morning, I was actually went back and just was doing more reading because I'm like, trying to re-understand things that I either wrote about a while ago or feel like I never knew well enough. And I picked up this book that's like one of the early books written about Gandhi by a Western academic. And it's just called Philosophy of Conflict. And so, you know, people think about Gandhi and, oh, look at this nice little skinny old man wearing like what looks like <laughs> right. sheet. That's what right? we think. Yeah. With the glasses. This was, it was about conflict. It was not about people think of nonviolence and they think, oh, you're a pacifist. And what Gandhi understood was that I talk about it in the book, it's this third way. It's not submitting and it's not fighting mm -hmm. with arms. And so mm -hmm. I think understanding that middle space, when you can enter that space, you have access to something that's very disruptive and very impactful. The other half of it is the simple truth. And this is the title of the book, right? We are power mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. most of us spend a lot of time. And I include myself in this, like, you know, other people set up the rules and other people are in charge and other people can send you to jail and other people decide how the budget's spent and if we go to war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all true. But what effective nonviolent activism almost invariably demonstrates is that power is a relationship. It's not something that somebody owns. And what I mean by that is that when we have something called sort of order or when we have a government that's in charge, it means that everybody else has agreed consciously or unconsciously to obey. Right. And we always have the potential to not obey. And when many of us refuse to obey, mm -hmm. we reclaim power. And so what effective movements do, and we've seen this in the last week and a half or so, is a bunch of people go out in the street and say no. This is not, we are going to just grind this to a halt. Right. We're going to create conflict, chaos to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. We're going to show, we're going to sort of perform our unwillingness to listen to you. Right. Then you have a crisis that the quote unquote authority must respond to. Right. Right. And we're seeing authority can respond to it in a bunch of different ways. They can respond to it like the president, which actually winds up making it worse for him. Absolutely. He clearly sort of lost this because he didn't realize that if he did what he did, especially with the tear gas thing on Monday, oh my God, right. that he would have more people side with the protesters. Because there's always three groups, right? There's always the, the resistors, the protesters, then there's the authority, and then there's basically people like Everyone us, else. Yep. which are sort of on the sideline. We're not directly suffering from what's so bad, right? I mean, we're all white Right. I'm looking at yeah. you seem to have a nice house behind yeah. you. Like yeah. you're lawyers, you're professionals. Right. I'm a professional. Right. Absolutely. But what happened among people like us over the week, if we were at all on the fence, we were like, oh, I'm not on the fence. Right. right. And you see this also, this is one of the ways they work. So that's why it's powerful. It's complicated. I mean, one of the things we see is that it's one thing to understand if all of us resist together that we have power. But the, the harder question, and this is, what we're going to be seeing now over the next months and years is, all right, when you demonstrate that you have that power, what do you do with it? How do you use it to actually change institutions? So I know, for instance, the work you do is a lot about how do we get institutions to do what at other times nonviolent activists have sort of 
force the issue. So I'm excited at some point in this podcast to talk about Crip Camp, which I assume have both of you seen it? The no. movie Crip Camp? No. No. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh, I we're... thought we were gonna spend half the time talking. Oh my a, god. <laughs> it's about the disability rights movement. Oh no. I I don't know why we haven't seen that. I don't but... know why we haven't either. We're oh gonna have god. to have right. you we'll on. We'll talk about it later. Yeah, we'll, we'll have you on again after we watch it. Oh my god. We'll have to have like, oh, you'll, a whole you'll new love it. It's, but on it's, that. it's exactly another sort of chapter of this story, mm. but from in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s of the disability rights movement, yeah. which works the exact same way of there's sort of laws, they're not getting enforced, or they're unjust, and they need to get passed, and they create organizations, and then eventually they have sit-ins, they take over buildings, and they claim their power. And I think that is something that a lot of people have been seeing that, and, and we say it all the time, you know, special education law, the IDEA was just created in the 70s. You know, it's not old, you know. And I think that people take things for granted, but even if they speak to their parents or their grandparents about how children that were different were treated, right? You know, not even to mention, you know, the institutions, you know, how many people that probably shouldn't have been institutionalized were institutionalized. I don't think people, they think it's so far away, right? It didn't happen in the 21st century or or whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. And we say that constantly, that this area of the law is still very much the Wild West. It's unique because it's based on the individual child, but there's 13 different eligibility categories. And then you have a category that's kind of the catch-all. So it has to be very individualized. And I think that's what kind of drew Amanda and I to this area of the law, is that you have to be creative. You have to be innovative. I think that the podcast was a natural branch for us in the sense of we can't know everything about these different disabilities and just different therapies. And so we've been able to learn so much more because we have wonderful guests like yourself who know way more than us and are able to have a conversation with us. And then, you know, we release it so that it's something that people, even if it's just a couple of minutes, they get a little bit of information. And that for us is starting that conversation. So, I mean, that's why we have the podcast. But now we will definitely have you on so that we can discuss that movie because I, I would love to see yeah, yeah. your perspective oh you're for a treat if you haven't seen it yeah okay it's really as far as i understand the work you do yeah i think it's gonna be like oh, oh it's gonna God, be, yeah for me. no yeah so, thank you i'm for happy to us. talk about it <laughs> but the one thing i want to mention about sort of the work you do versus what i'm writing about is that another sort of dynamic in all this is that Nonviolent direct activism, what I'm writing about in the book is one way to understand what it is. It's extra institutional. It's outside the normal channels of change. But it's always done with an eye on eventually kind of crossing over to institutions and to the laws. Right. Mm -hmm, And so there's mm -hmm. this kind of. So, I mean, we're seeing it right now with these protests that they don't want anarchy. Right. 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 They want a change to policing a change to the way government is investing in communities. They want to change to the sort of legal system, right? So this isn't like, we just don't like the police. You're all racist. Let's burn the city to the ground. There's expressions of that. But by and large, what they want is we want a different order. We want a just order. Mm -hmm. And so what happens in that is that eventually there's laws. And then eventually there's people like you that sort of navigate it and force institutions to abide by them, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like if you go back to, you know, something like the Montgomery bus boycott, there were legal decisions that were already on their side. That wasn't the problem. 
the problem is is and i'm assuming you know this better than i do that like law isn't doesn't do it law is not a person right and there's institutions yeah. and communities and societies that are aware of laws and ignore them or resist them or pretend that they don't you know whatever so right. that back and forth between the nonviolent direct action kind of people in the street and then all this work that's a little bit sort of less sexy and glamorous is there that's a dialogue that's really crucial to how societies change absolutely well the enforcers right the watchmen if you will we definitely know that oh, we right. say this to clients all the time we we shouldn't have jobs but we do. We are a special education law firm, you know, and it's kind of sad. But Todd, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. I know that's a quick kind of pivot, but where can people find the book? Amazon, any kind of... Sure. Retailer? So the book, yeah, the book, We are. let's say the title again, oh, yes. We Are Power, How Nonviolent Activism Changes the World. It's available anywhere. I encourage people to support their independent bookstore. There's also even places online now where you can go and find out Black-owned independent bookstores. Yes. So I would strongly encourage you to find it that way. But it's available. It's available as an ebook if that's your thing. So it is out. It is about. So thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And thank you so much. We will, hopefully this was very informative. Hopefully you guys go out and get the book. I mean, it was, it's an easy read, but really not. I was enthralled with it and there's a lot of pictures and just, I don't know, it's just really great. It's so, so informative, especially <laughs> yeah. for this time. So we exactly. encourage our listeners definitely to go Absolutely. out. Get Absolutely. Get it. I know we have so much more we can talk about and we will need to talk about. We will have you back on. So sure. if well, you certainly want. if you want to talk about Crip Camp, we could totally do that. That could be fun to I made my I've watched it twice. So oh, for okay. me it's like yes, more okay. stories like this. But the okay. other thing I'll say about the book is yeah. you know, officially it's for younger readers, but a couple things. One is that um and Vicky, you sort of mentioned this, like all adults sort of know this material in a really superficial way. But, yeah. And I include myself in this, like I knew like, oh, Gandhi, MLK, nonviolence. That's what I knew. And yep. that's what everybody somehow knows and they don't know more. And so I think adults learn a lot from this. And then also, and I say this sort of half in jest, you know, we all have this kind of withered attention span right now. Absolutely. During the pandemic. And so reading a book that's below your age level is maybe not a bad idea. It's so because I, I know not. a lot of adults that have been reading like finally a book I was able to get. <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful. I enjoyed it. And I hope you guys do too. Thanks. Bye-bye.